Welcome, all of you, to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Associate Director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at Cato. Uh, and it's my pleasure to be able to welcome you here today to our event uh, for David Edelstein's book, Occupational Hazards, Success and Failure in Military Occupation. Uh, it's a terribly important topic and, and, and terribly timely as well. Uh, my colleague and friend Chris Preble and I were joking about one of the blurbs on the book, if only we had had this book before the invasion of Iraq, said <clears throat> Jack Snyder of Columbia University. But then Chris and I discussed this topic a little more and wondered whether or not uh, actual expertise on the subject of military occupations wouldn't have ended up uh, at the bottom of the White House trash can somewhere because of the uh, disheartening conclusions that one would have come to from a sort of sober assessment of the prospects of the endeavor itself. Let me go ahead and I think what I'll do first is introduce the author, David Edelstein, let him speak, and then introduce our two commentators and critics of the book. Uh, David Edelstein is assistant professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and the Department of Government at Georgetown University. He's also a core faculty member uh, in Georgetown Security Studies Program and the Center for Peace and Security Studies. He received both a Ph.D. and M.A. Uh, from the University of Chicago's Department of Political Science and a B.A. from Colgate University. Prior to coming to Georgetown, Edelstein was a research fellow at Harvard's uh, Belfer Center for Security for Science and International Affairs and Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation. So without further ado, we present David Edelstein. Uh, thank you, Justin. Thank you for the kind introduction, uh, and thank you for organizing this. Um, it's my pleasure to be here, and thank you for, to Cato for hosting this. Um, also, my thanks to Bob and Chris um, for taking on the, I hope, not too onerous task of, of reading the book and agreeing to um, comment on it. And finally, uh, thank you to all of you for, for coming in on what is a, a gorgeous day outside and agreeing to sit inside for a while. Um, and hear about something which is not um, not particularly happy. I guess I get I get comments from people. The book came out shortly before the uh, International Studies Association meeting uh, this past March, and people saw the the book in the book room and looked on the inside of the back cover at the photo of me. And and I had people say, "That's is that your CNN photo?" Is that, <laughs> it's a very it's a very sort of serious, somber looking looking photo and people said why do you have such a serious somber looking photo and I said well it seemed a little odd for me to have kind of this this very chipper happy photo in the back of a book that um, is not a particularly happy story so um, <clears throat> that explains that but thank you for being here um, what I want to do today um, is tell you a little bit about sort of the origins of this project why I wrote this book um, how I, I came to think about it um, give you a sense of, of the argument I make over the, the course of the book, uh, and then talk about some of the implications uh, of that argument. So let me begin by talking a bit about the, the origins of it. Um, I started working on this project uh, in the fall of 2002. As many of you will recall, uh, that was a period in which there was much discussion about a, um, um, a likely war against Iraq, um, and then less discussion about the aftermath of that war and what would perhaps be uh, involved in Iraq uh, were the war to be <clears throat> successful. Uh, and at the time, 
many of those who talked about a potential war in Iraq and its aftermath had a tendency to, I think, rather simplistically invoke um, the examples of Germany and Japan after World War II and say, look, we had all this great success in Germany and Japan after World War II. Why couldn't we have similar success? Why won't we have similar success in <coughs> Iraq um, after uh, a possible war there. And this prompted a, a couple of concerns in my head that, that eventually turned into this project. Um, let me sort of highlight two of the concerns. First, um, is Iraq really like Germany and Japan, right? Um, and should we really be expecting that Iraq after a war in 2003 was going to be like Germany and Japan after 1945? Um, and shouldn't we look a little bit more closely to see if that analogy is really likely to hold up? And second, it occurred to me that it couldn't possibly be the case that the only two military occupations in history were the occupations of Germany and Japan uh, after World War II, um, and that it might um, actually be useful to look at a wider universe of cases and see whether that evidence that one would, would um, gather is consistent with the lessons we learned from Germany and Japan, or whether there's um, perhaps some, something more troubling um, in that evidence. Um, and just to preview where I'm heading, um, the evidence was, in fact, um, considerably more troubling. And, and Germany and Japan are, in fact, I think, the exceptions mm. rather than the rules when it comes to um, the history of, of military occupation. Um, so the book is driven by a, a relatively simple puzzle, which is why do some occupations succeed whereas others fail? Um, sort of a little detour into social science, right? It's a, it's a nice puzzle in the sense that there actually is variation there, right? There are military occupations out there that succeeded. Germany and Japan, I think, unquestionably succeeded um, in, as military occupations. Um, but then there are a whole host of others that, that did not succeed. So the goal of the book is to sort of try and explain that variation um, uh, among the history of, of occupations. Um, let me give you a sort of a, a broad overview of kind of what exactly that evidence looks like um, that I gathered in the book. Um, one of the first steps that I took in doing this research was to, as one might do, put together a, um, a data set of, of military occupations historically and sort of try and see, well, what do we know um, in terms of why they were more successful in some cases than others. Um, just to get a few definitions out of the way, since people are naturally interested in this, when I talk about occupation, it's a bit of a fuzzy term, um, and there's no kind of standard definition that I think um, everybody uses. Um, I'm talking essentially about the temporary seizure of control over a far, foreign territory without any claim to permanent sovereignty. Um, the key to this definition is that it must be intended to be temporary. That is, one goes in and occupies another country with some goal that they want to get out of that, but then they also want to leave at some point. Um, and this distinguishes occupation from conquest, conquest being a case where you actually would take over and perhaps annex another um, territory, um, and also distinct in a, a kind of fuzzier way uh, from colonialism, in that I think in many colonial cases, while the ambition to leave at some point um, was in fact there, it was much more ambiguous and vague than it typically is in cases of military occupation. Um, when I talk about success and failure, it's worth noting that this book is written primarily from the perspective of um, success or failure in terms of the occupying power. That is, this book is, is focused on military occupation as a tool of statecraft. 
um, and is therefore concerned with, as a sort of country that might be considering military occupation, um, whether or not this is a good idea. Uh, And so success in uh, in this book is defined in terms of the occupier's success. Did it achieve its goals, which most often have to do with um, sort of guaranteeing or increasing its security as a result of the occupation. Okay, so with those definitions out of the way, I looked uh, since 1815 uh, and identified 26 completed cases of military occupation um, and then four that are ongoing today. Um, And the basic record is that military occupations succeed about 25% of the time. Um, about a quarter of the time they succeed. And the other interesting thing about this, this evidence is that the successes that one has seen historically um, are clustered around the end of World War II. <clears throat> that is, we all know the successes of Germany and Japan, but one could also think about Italy, um, Western Austria, um, for example, as relative successes. Um, and so there's an interesting puzzle there about sort of why have they clustered around World War II. Not only why are some more successful than others, but why does there appear to be this historical period in which there was a, um, a particular record of um, success? Um, interestingly enough, perhaps to some of you, the, um, the one case that is not um, from the post-World War II period, which was a, a, a full-fledged success, um, is actually the first case in the data set, which is the, the occupation of Napoleonic France after the, the, uh, the occupation of France after the Napoleonic Wars, um, which I'm happy to talk about in question and answer if anybody wants to know. It, it succeeds for somewhat idiosyncratic reasons having to do with the, the goals of that occupation that, that aren't, too, um, aren't too relevant um, today, I don't think. Um, all right. So what's the, what's the argument I make to sort of try and explain why occupations succeed sometimes but not others? Well, the basic challenge of military occupation, something that we know from lots of research that's been done on military occupation, is that if a military occupation is going to succeed, it requires both time and resources to succeed. But what I observe as being the challenge of occupation is that Resistance from both the population of the occupied territory and the occupying power itself make it difficult to produce this time and resources that one needs in order to succeed. From the perspective of the population, nationalism, their desire to govern themselves, leads them to quickly grow impatient with military occupation. And from the perspective of the occupying power, they too start to question, the population within the occupying power starts to question whether the occupation of the foreign territory is worth the resources that they're devoting to it, and isn't there an opportunity cost of devoting considerable resources and time to a military occupation? If an occupation is going to succeed, it needs to overcome these twin challenges. It needs to somehow convince the occupied population to at least tolerate the occupation, even if they're not happy about it, and it needs to convince the occupying power to continue to devote those resources um, to the occupation. Um, just to sort of draw a little bit from history, I actually opened the book with a, with a quote from um, General Douglas MacArthur um, in 1947 when he was commanding the um, occupation of Japan. He wrote in a, a letter to Congress, actually imploring Congress to continue its support for the occupation of Japan. He wrote, quote, history points out the unmistakable lesson that military occupations serve their purpose at best for only a limited time, after which a deterioration rapidly sets in. 
end quote. Elsewhere, uh, MacArthur sort of gets a little bit more specific and actually suggests that three years is about the limit that one can um, expect mm. for an occupation before it's going to start to um, run into, in particular, impatience among the occupied population. Um, ironically enough, of course, um, MacArthur commanded the Japan occupation that went on for almost seven years and, in fact, succeeded. Um, so he managed to kind of pull this off, and, and part of my argument here is to try and explain why MacArthur was able to pull this off despite his own um, concerns about this. So what was it in Japan? What was it in Germany? Some of the other successes that allowed these occupations to succeed. Well, the critical variable in my argument is what I refer to as the threat environment surrounding the occupation. That is, what type of threat does the occupied territory face? Does it face some external threat to its security from which the occupying power can protect it? Does it alternatively face an internal threat in which there are groups within the society that disagree among themselves and are inclined to fight over control of the territory? Or does it face no threat at all? And the argument I make is that the key to the success of military occupation historically has been the presence of an external threat from which the occupying power can protect the population and which motivates the occupying power to continue to provide those resources and sustain the commitment to the occupation. Just to give an example here, um, think for a moment about Germany in 1945. If you're living in Western Germany in 1945, after the war concludes, um, you're pretty well aware that you're not simply going to be allowed to go your own way after World War II. Um, the sort of lesson had been learned about potential dangers from Germany in between World War I and World War II, and there was a recognition that Germany needed help in rebuilding. So the Germans, if you're living there, have to recognize that you're going to be occupied by somebody. Now, your choice is you could be occupied by the United States, the British, or even the French, um, on the western side, or alternatively, you could be occupied by the Soviet Union, which is approaching from the east. Now, there were plenty of reports coming from the east that western Germans were well aware of, of the behavior of the Soviets as they moved westward across central and eastern Europe, and in particular, the manner in which they raped and pillaged their way across um, Central and Eastern Europe. Now, this is not to suggest that Americans or Brits or the French that were there were necessarily angels in the way that they conducted themselves in Western Europe towards the end of World War II. There's lots of evidence coming out now, in fact, about just how brutal that was. But that, in fact, is, is the nature of war sometimes. But for Western Germans, they very well understood that occupation under the British, the French, and the Americans was preferable to occupation under the Soviets. And the presence of this external threat from the Soviets, the very powerful Soviet Union, on their eastern border, in fact, motivated them um, to accept occupation, to tolerate occupation, in order to protect it from this other threat. At the same time, the United States, leaders within the United States quickly recognized that Germany was the, the emerging um, key battleground in, in the Cold War um, that, and that it was important to provide for Germany's security. So for both the occupied population and the occupying power, this external threat served um, to allow the occupation to continue without um, considerable uh, objection. All right. So that's the sort of main argument I, I make in the book um, and sort of the key independent variable. Um, when I started working on this book, um, 
as one might expect, I sort of got to start getting comments back from people, and, and people said, well, doesn't it matter how you conduct the occupation, right? That's got to have some effect on the outcome of the occupation. And that seemed sensible to me, and, and I started looking at it, and in fact, there's a sort of case that sort of highlights this, and it's the sort of next chapter in the book after I introduced this threat environment, um, which is that, think about the case of, of Korea. Um, Korea is divided in August of 1945. There's a line drawn down the middle of Korea. The North is occupied by the Soviets, um, and the U.S. is occupied, uh, the South is occupied by the U.S. Um, what's interesting about the the case of North and South Korea in the subsequent years uh, is that the occupation in the North is actually far more successful than the occupation in the South. Um, it's a little-known historical example. Um, the one post-World War II U.S. occupation that did not go particularly well was the occupation of Southern Korea. Um, and what's interesting is that the structural variable that I identified doesn't do a particularly good job at, at accounting for this variation. Why sort of things went better in the North than they did in the South. So I develop an argument that sort of suggests that, that strategy does matter in how you conduct the occupation. Um, and there are a range of strategies that an occupying power can, can opt for, um, some of which are likely to be more successful than others. Um, on the one hand, there are more cooperative strategies, um, accommodating the population, using sort of economic inducements um, to get the population to cooperate. Or then there are more sort of um, harder strategies, uh, namely coercion that attempts to coerce the population. Um, and in general, I argue that it is preferable if you can use the more cooperative strategies. It's easier in some sense. Um, but that coercive strategies can succeed um, if um, under – it's just simply more difficult and more costly um, to do that. Um, and in fact, in the case of North Korea and South Korea – the reason that the occupation in the North was more successful was because of a, a pretty radical um, coercive campaign that was carried out over the course of that occupation. Um, in essence, um, the North Koreans and the Soviets, um, they either imprisoned anybody who disagreed with them or they sent over a million people to the South. Um, and they said, if you disagree with us, you're, you're welcome to leave. Um, and over a million people did. Um, and it made it considerably easier um, uh, for that occupation because they did leave the north and went to the south. Um, the, uh, the argument about the threat environment sort of intersects with this argument about strategies. Um, a favorable threat environment makes accommodation and inducement easier, which reinforces the positive threat environment in some ways, whereas an unfavorable threat environment, when there isn't that external threat motivating cooperation, necessitates coercion which may only reinforce this unfavorable threat environment. Uh, in the case of Southern Korea, after, immediately after World War II, and again, I'm talking about this period from sort of 1945 until 1949, um, a period that's kind of forgotten in this history. We think of the U.S. and South Korea having this wonderful relationship. That relationship really emerges in the Korean War um, and after the Korean War. Prior to the Korean War, there was a lot of difficulty in that, in that relationship. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that there was an unfavorable threat environment in South Korea. Um, Korea had been liberated from Japanese. Japanese colonialism, uh, they didn't particularly, they were grateful for that. They were grateful for the fact that the Japanese were gone, but they didn't particularly want to be occupied by anybody else. And they didn't perceive an external threat that would um, motivate them to cooperate. And in particular, they didn't appreciate it when the United States came along and said, Sigmund Rhee is going to be your leader. Um, he did not have a lot of popular support within Korea, and if the Southern Koreans had been able to choose from themselves, they likely would not have chosen him. 
As a consequence, um, there was a reliance on coercion in Southern Korea um, that did not succeed, um, as well as coercion had succeeded in the North. Okay. So the final piece of the argument I make uh, is, well, what happens when this all goes wrong? Um, and um, the argument I make here is, is what I come to refer to as the occupation dilemma, which is that you get to a point in an occupation where you have to decide what you're going to do going forward um, and your choice is truly a dilemma. On the one hand, you can sustain the occupation and insist on going forward with it despite the rising costs and the prospect that objections to the occupation are only going to increase over time. On the other hand, you can sort of hightail it out of there, right? And you can say, all right, we're going to give up on this and we're going to go home. Um, the danger there is that you leave without having accomplished your goals. And in fact, it's quite possible that you may have to re-intervene at some point in the future. Um, and there are, in the book, I lay out two examples that I think show both horns of this dilemma. Um, the U.S. occupied Cuba after the Spanish-American War in 1898. By 1902, the U.S., for both um, uh, domestic reasons as well as objections coming out of Cuba, decides to end its occupation of Cuba, um, does so in a hurried fashion without having prepared Cuba for independence. By 1906, the U.S. is forced to go back in um, to try and restore order there. Um, on the other hand, on the other horn of the dilemma, I talk about the British occupation of Egypt, um, which began in 1882 um, with several declarations about how they hoped that this would be short-lived. Um, the British were starting to sort of think about, rather than expanding their empire, contracting their empire. Um, as many of you may know, um, the British did not ultimately leave Egypt until 1954. Um, and this shows the other horn of this dilemma. Okay, so that's the basic sort of structure of the argument I, I make. I'm happy to flush this out in more detail in Q&A, but I don't want to go on too long here. Um, let me just talk about some alternative arguments that I address over the course of the book and then wrap up with some implications. Okay, so there are a few alternative arguments that have been made um, in the literature and elsewhere about what might um, account for occupation success. Let me let me very quickly go through them and sort of my, my response to them. And again, I'm happy to talk more about them. One of the arguments has to do with economic development and says that Germany and Japan were such um, successes because they had sort of an industrial infrastructure upon which um, success could be built. Um, I think there's a certain element of truth in that, um, that it certainly helped that they had developed economies. But it's also worth thinking historically about the fact that in both Germany and Japan, the original instinct of the United States um, was effectively to neuter both countries. Um, many of you are probably familiar with the Morgenthau Plan in Germany, which um, was going to turn Germany into, um, well, a lunar scape um, with, with really kind of not much going on there. Um, and there was sort of a similar plan um, for Japan involving taking apart all the industrial conglomerates within Japan. Well, at some point, obviously, um, there's a reversal of that decision, Right? And there's a reversal to say, okay, we need to develop these economies in Germany and Japan. Um, and that reversal coincides with the emergence of the Cold War and a recognition of this Soviet threat that was out there and the fact that German and Japanese industrial resources were going to be essential um, in sort of holding off this Soviet threat and in satisfying the populations um, so that they wouldn't turn um, to socialism or communism. So there may be something to the economic development argument, but I think there's a sort of precursor to that, which involves this threat environment that allowed the development to take place. 
Okay. Um, a second argument that's made is an argument about um, multilateralism, which is that occupation is more likely to succeed when it is carried out multilaterally. Um, this is a critique that has been made. Um, John Dower, who's perhaps the preeminent historian of the occupation of Japan, um, made an argument at the outset of the Iraq War that the reason Iraq was not going to be successful um, was because it, it did not have the legitimacy that multilateralism would um, would give it. Um, I, I address this argument in the book in a couple of ways. Um, one is that Dower himself is contradictory on this point, um, in that sort of there wasn't the to the extent that the occupation of Japan was multilateralism, multilateral, it was really token multilateralism. Um, MacArthur had very little interest in cooperating with, with any of the, the supposed allies um, in, in Japan. They were sort of, there was a committee created that they were allowed to meet, but nothing they said was ever listened to. Um, and then the other way that I sort of address this in the book is I look at, um, one of the things the book doesn't do is consider UN kind of quasi-occupations as part of the data set. For a variety of reasons, I think UN cases are different. But I also, I do include a chapter that looks at the cases of Kosovo and East Timor as a test of whether this argument could, in fact, be extended to think about UN peacekeeping operations. Um, and one of the things that I find in, that, in those cases is that I think multilateralism contributes in the fact that it allows for sort of um, cost sharing and it allows countries um, that may not want to take on this burden themselves to cooperate in this. But I didn't find much evidence that it was the legitimacy of the UN, an argument that's often made, that allowed, those, that allowed East Timor to be a preliminary success. And in the case of Kosovo, I think we still have sort of a – the jury is still out on, on where Kosovo was going to end up. Um, and then the final argument that I address is a very popular argument um, in, in, inside the Beltway um, right after um, the Iraq War, which is an argument that emerged out of much of the voluminous work done at RAND on um, nation building and occupations. Um, and the RAND work initially, they've, they've somewhat moved away from this, but the RAND work uh, initially um, was very much sort of an input-output model. Um, it said that if you put in enough troops, if you put in enough money, and if you stay for long enough, then the evidence suggests that you can, you can succeed at this. Um, and frankly, I don't think the evidence really bears that out. Um, I don't think there's sort of a causal mechanism there that really bears that out. Um, and I think uh, the one example that I can, I can give here um, is the case of Kosovo. Um, per capita basis, um, according to Rand's own work, Kosovo has been among the greatest recipients of, um, of aid uh, and economic assistance, um, and it also has had per capita a very large um, troop presence there. Um, and as a consequence of this, I think, I have seen um, some of the people at RAND, some of whom are friends of mine, um, go to strenuous lengths to argue that Kosovo has been a great success. Um, because they sort of have to make that argument um, if they're, if they're going to sustain this argument. Now, I don't think Kosovo has been a, a failure. As I said, I think the jury is still out on Kosovo. Um, but I think it's hard to sustain an argument that sort of points to Kosovo as being your great success for nation building. Um, because, I, as I said, I, you know, if, if the peacekeepers and, um, that are currently in Kosovo can never leave, um, and I'm not sure when they're ever going to be able to leave. I'm not sure that you can label it a, a full-on nation-building success. All right. So what's the, what are the implications of this? Well, the first question everybody obviously asks is about Iraq. Um, I should say from the outset, 
Um, this is not a book about Iraq. Um, I'm not an Iraq expert. There are lots of people out there who know a lot more about Iraq than I do, but of course the book has sort of Iraq as a motivator. So in the concluding chapter, I talk about Iraq. Um, and not surprisingly um, to any of you, uh, I, I find that sort of what has happened in Iraq um, since 2003 largely consistent with the argument I've laid out for you here today. Um, I would argue that Iraq faced an unfavorable threat environment. There was no external threat around which the U.S. and the occupied populations have coalesced. Um, neither Iran nor al-Qaeda in Iraq, I think, has sort of motivated all sides, um, as particularly given the divisions within the Iraqi population, um, to go along um, with the occupation. And in fact, Iraqi nationalism or nationalisms um, has um, made the, had made, made the occupation um, uh, quite difficult. Um, the increase in numbers, the so-called surge, has indeed helped stabilize the security situation. Um, but again, as the argument in my book would suggest, um, the problem of occupation is far more a political problem um, than it is a simple security problem. Um, and I don't think the surge has yet um, um, solved all of the political problems that need to be solved if Iraq is going to be a successful country um, in the long term. Um, I've had a, some friends suggest that I should, I should actually write an op-ed now um, arguing that the reason why things in Iraq have been going modestly better recently, um, that we should all be thanking Iran, um, that it is in fact the, the sort of logic of my argument that um, as Iran has emerged as more of a threat that more of the population is seeing, um, and the U.S. clearly sees Iran as a threat, that this is sort of consistent with the external threat argument that, that I've laid out for you. All right, finally... Um, what does all this say about the future of, of military occupation or nation building? Um, I should be clear, I think there are indeed cases where it may be necessary um, to occupy another country for both um, the good of the U.S. national security um, and the good of population. Um, but we shouldn't expect it to be easy. Um, there were few alternatives for Germany and Japan after 1945, um, and I think we were somewhat lucky in that we had sort of fortuitous structural conditions that made those occupations somewhat easier. Um, uh, second sort of, um, sort of thing to consider here going forward is that there are lots of people who don't like this argument because it is so structural. Um, and they say, well, that doesn't tell me much as a policymaker or a policy analyst about what we can do. But that's precisely my point, um, <laughs> uh, is that I think one of the most important things for policymakers to understand um, is that they do operate under structural constraints um, and that understanding the limits of what they can accomplish um, is as important as understanding the opportunities for what they can accomplish. Um, there's one sort of key theme that I, I leave the book with that, um, that I sort of – Think about it. It's, it's an idea of prudence, right? It's thinking about thinking prudently about decisions to invade another country and what the consequences of that are going to be uh, in terms of military occupation going forward. Um, we've spent a lot of time um, in the last five years asking about how we can conduct military occupations better. Right? What are the things that can be done to conduct <clears throat> military occupations better? And I certainly wouldn't deny that this is a key question. But I also don't think we have spent nearly enough time asking whether we should be in this business at all. Thank you. Thanks very much, David. I think if it's all right with the commenters, we'll continue in alphabetical order with uh, Robert Perito going first and uh, Chris Preble second. 
Robert M. Perito is a senior program officer in the Center for Post-Conflict Peace and Stability Operations at the U.S. Institute for Peace. He's the coordinator of the Peacekeeping Lessons Learned Project and the Haiti Working Group there. He came to USIP in 2001 as a senior fellow in the Jennings Randolph Fellowship Program. Before joining USIP, he was a Foreign Service Officer with the Department of State, retiring with the rank of Minister Counselor. He served as a Deputy Executive Secretary of the NSC in 1988-1989 and was a Congressional Fellow in 1980. Perito received a a Presidential Meritorious Service Award in 1990 for leading the U.S. delegation to the Angola Peace Talks. He also served as Deputy Director of the International Criminal Investigative Training Assistance Program at the U.S. Department of Justice, which trained uh, police in international police operations. He previously was a Peace Corps volunteer and served as a rural development officer in Nigeria. He's taught at Princeton, American, and George Mason Universities and holds a BA in International Relations from Denver University and an MA in Peace Operations Policy from the George Mason University. Uh, The next speaker will then be my friend and colleague, Christopher Preble, who's the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, He joined uh, the Institute in February 2003, prior to which he taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. He was a commissioned officer on uh, on board the USS Ticonderoga, Uh, in the U.S. Navy and as such served as a veteran of the Gulf War, uh, serving uh, on the Ticonderoga 1990-1993. He's the author of Exiting Iraq, uh, Why the U.S. Military Must End the Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda, as well as John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap, uh, a book discussing the political and economic roots of national security strategy in the late 50s and early 1960s. His work has been published in major publications, USA Today, New Republic, Reason, Political Science Quarterly, and he has appeared on the normal panoply of broadcast media, NPR, uh, the whole gamut of the cable news chatting heads networks. So with that, we'll turn things over to Robert Perito. Good morning. Thank you all for coming this morning on such a gorgeous day. Um, and uh, I want to thank Cato for the invitation to be here this morning. It's my first time here as a speaker, but I've been to several really excellent presentations. Um, I'd like to begin by complimenting David on a well-written, timely, and uh, extremely interesting book. Um, I agree with the basic conclusion concerning the overriding importance of an external threat in determining the success or failure of military occupations, particularly as this relates to Germany and Japan. Um, I see a few people that are my age in the audience, but most of you are a little bit younger. And uh, <clears throat> 20 years on after the end of the or after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's maybe a little bit difficult to uh, to think about what that experience was like. But in 1983, I was stationed as a Foreign Service officer at the United Nations uh, at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva. And one summer, I took my family on vacation. Um, we were in Germany, and we decided to drive through a portion of East Germany to reach West Berlin. Um, so I was driving my sleek new BMW, and we set out on this road. Um, the Soviets and the Germans had cleared miles on either side of this highway, which was the foreign only access by land to West Berlin, and created a kind of no-man's land. As we drove along on two or three occasions, we were passed coming the other direction by 
East German cars. These things looked like washing machines on wheels, and they sounded about as bad. (laughs) After going through a really very elaborate set of checkpoints, we rolled into West Berlin, which was a vibrant, modern city. And then um, we took a bus over into East Berlin, and the feeling was one of going through a time warp. Broad streets, no traffic, shabby buildings, depressed-looking people. And then there was the experience of riding the bus with the East German border guards coming on and doing a microscopic inspection of all parts of the buses to make sure that nobody was trying to sneak out. Um, No one could have missed the benefits of being in an area where there was Western occupation or the problems and the threat that loomed from, from the other side at that point. Uh, also, I agree with the book's view that occupying foreign countries should be the, uh, the policy option of last resort. And um, anyone who reads this book, any future U.S. leader, you know, ought to conclude immediately that regime change, occupation, or intervention with a quickie exit strategy um, should not be part of their a la carte menu of policy choices. Where I take exception to this book, um, and actually I had to read the whole book, Uh, down to the last three pages before I disagree with anything. (laughs) I thought, this is going to be the world's shortest speech. I'm going to get up here and say, Dave, great book. I agree. (laughs) But I did find something at the very, very end to take exception with. Uh, And these are the conclusions that that, uh, the book comes to concerning preparation, true presence, and the U.S. approach to successor regimes. Uh, Particularly I particularly focused on the three case studies there in the book that deal with U.S. military occupations. In addition to Germany and Japan, these are Cuba in 1998, Haiti in 1915, and South Korea in 1945. And as you heard in the introduction, at USIP, I had a multi-year study that we're undertaking of lessons learned in post-conflict interventions. Um, And um, so I found these historic case studies is really the best part of the book. You know, I really like these. Now, there are three aspects of these operations, these U.S. interventions, these U.S. occupations, that I think are instructive because they're very similar to the experience we've had in Iraq. The first of these is the fact that in all of these cases, the United States was unprepared for the intervention. And this goes beyond knowledge of language or local culture or political forces. It really goes to the failure to conceive the magnitude of the task and to marshal the resources and the capacities and have them at hand in order to deal with the job. In each of these cases, and in Iraq, the U.S. failed to anticipate the need to marshal substantial resources, to understand the attitudes and the aspirations of the local population. We all remember the uh, Iraqi exiles who told us it would be sweets and flowers or you know, France in 47 and, or 44, and then it would be all over quickly and we could all come home. And to explain to the American public why the U.S. government was undertaking the intervention and remaining in the first place. Haiti is the best of these cases. Haiti is the case, the one of these cases that I know best. Uh, I was part of the planning for the 1994 intervention in Haiti. We've gone back multiple times. And uh, twice in the past year I've been there to look at the U.N. occupation. Um, In 1914, U.S. Marines went ashore ostensibly to respond to a riot which had involved the death and dismemberment of the president of Haiti uh, at the moment. 
and then U.S. Marines continued to occupy the place for the next 20 years. We went in with no concept that we were actually going to do this. Once in, we couldn't figure a way to get out, and we simply stayed. In Haiti and in Cuba, as the book describes, and in South Korea and in Iraq, the U.S. strategy, once the intervention took place, was simply to improvise. In Germany and Japan, however, the con there was a startling contrast here in the fact that there were years of preparation, there was a great marshalling of resources, there was popular support at home, which was encouraged sometimes to the use of scare tactics, but at least Americans understood why we were there, as did the local population. The second point is that in Haiti, Cuba, and South Korea, and in Iraq, there was a near total reliance on the military. In Iraq, for a while, there was civilian leadership but the U.S. military had the critical resources. In Iraq, the coalition provisional authority, as most of us know, was never at more than 50 percent strength, so it's not surprising that it failed to achieve uh, the results that, that it sought. Uh, the soldiers' joke in Iraq during that period was that the initial CPA really stood for can't provide anything, or given the youthfulness of most of the members of the CPA staff, um, it was said that CPA stood for children playing adults. <laughs> Currently, the U.S. faces a crisis in civilian government capacity. Um, as many of you know, the Foreign Service of the United States is at present 20 percent under strength. It can't fill – it can only fill 90 percent of its slots. It's far too small to meet its international responsibilities. Um, USAID – its complement is almost of staff officers has almost disappeared, dropping from 15,000 when I entered the U.S. government back during the Vietnam War to about 1,200 people today. Um, as the book makes clear, the major challenge in post-conflict interventions in foreign occupations is a political challenge, and nationalism is not a is a political force. Governance is not a core capacity of the military, yet we seem to have a knee-jerk reaction historically and at the present. And when we get into a circumstance like this, we just turn around and say, okay, let the military do it. Third is that the U.S. exit strategy in Haiti, Cuba, and South Korea included holding an election, sort of as we were on our way to the port or airport to leave. We had an election, and somehow that was supposed to take care of it. In post-conflict interventions, Americans seem to have a tendency to confuse elections with democracy and effective governments, governance, and these are not the same thing. In all of these case studies, the governments that the U.S. left behind failed because too little was done to ensure that successive regimes could effectively govern the places that they became responsible for. And this has been the case in Iraq where there's been a series of appointed and elected governments, but a general stalemate at the national level in terms of political reconciliation. Finally, the book argues that without an external threat, there is little that can be done to prevent the failure of an occupation over the long term. However, I would argue that if the United States makes adequate preparations develops the appropriate civilian capacity and marshals the necessary resources that maybe we won't get to the long term, that we may be able to take care of these problems 
in the future in the short run. Um, as the book notes, and I think maybe this is in some respects the most important part, is that we live in an age of fragile and failing states and an age where we are confronting a series of non-state actors that engage in international terrorism. Clearly, military occupation should not be a policy option of first resort, but we may find ourselves in circumstances where we have no choice. The United States may find itself in the future in a situation where it has to occupy a future Afghanistan or a future Somalia where there is no option. And therefore, I think we need to move beyond the understanding that the book provides and to engage in developing the capacities that the United States needs to, uh, to do these uh, kinds of things successfully. And so um, I would argue that we should take this book as a warning and that the United States should begin to work. We all, in our various capacities, should lobby our Congress and uh, work together to begin to develop the capacities which would enable us to conduct post-conflict interventions in a successful manner. Otherwise, history will indeed repeat itself. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been uh, I've been thinking about this this argument uh, for a couple years because I was first introduced to it by um, in uh, David published an article in International Security back end of two thousand four. Is that right? And uh, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and so my great uh, frustration is that what I'm going to say over the next few minutes is just going to sound like a very whiny rambling lament as opposed to a uh, uh, well-structured, buttoned-up argument. Uh, Hopefully we'll see if that – and I, um, of course, did not have the benefit of of knowing what Bob was going to say beforehand. I'd like to take an entire different line of argument with respect to Bob, but I'm not going to do that. We can leave that for the Q&A. because what I want to try to do is to make, make a, a somewhat broader argument as it relates to the, the uses of uh, this type of analysis, this absolutely first-rate, uh, uh, fair-minded, objective analysis in uh, constructing public policy. And, and um, so let me take off from a, a, a note near the end of the book where – David writes, some might argue that there is little to be learned from cases of occupation that occurred as much as almost two centuries ago. According to this argument, the occupations of today are different in terms of objectives, methods, and context, so there are a few lessons to be learned from, for example, the U.S. occupation of Cuba or the multilateral occupation of Germany after World War II. Um, Not only might they say that, but they do say that, and they did say that prior to uh, the invasion of Iraq. Um, these are the structural constraints. I had no way of knowing that, D- that David was going to set this up, but I actually brought a prop today. This is one of the ubiquitous rubber balls for my kids that I step on in my house. And, and I want to talk about structural constraints, okay? Because the structural constraint in the normal – no, I'm not going to throw it at anyone, I promise you. <clears throat> because the structural constraint that we operate in the physical world, one of them is gravity, right? So when I drop this ball, you know that it's going to – fall and not go up, right? The structural constraints in public policy, sadly, 
I would argue, are not nearly that uh, clear to just the naked eye, right? And they depend upon people, scholars, historians and political scientists in particular, to make those observations clear to people, okay? And so when you have a situation like we had prior to the invasion of Iraq and you have a study prepared by not exactly a bastion of, of uh, you know, anti-American sentiment. This is from the Strategic Studies Institute at the Army War College. Quote, rebuilding Iraq will require a considerable commitment of American resources, but the longer U.S. presence is maintained, the more likely violent resistance will develop. This is the occupation dilemma, which is one of the other central insights, the other one being the threat environment. I agree completely with David on both points. That threat environment is crucial and largely beyond the control of the occupier. And two, that there is this dilemma of how long to stay and, and in what fashion. So go back again. So why is it that this kind of fair-minded objective analysis was not accepted? And I think it's because we can no longer assume good faith uh, by any public policymaker, and this is look, this is not unique to the to, to the Bush administration by any stretch, because what we have now is argumentation as a lawyer's brief. Okay, it is it is the key is to put not all the relevant facts on the table, but the relevant facts that are relevant to your case that either prove the guilt or innocence of your client. Okay, it is not to put all the facts on the table. In fact, it is it is to put the good facts on the table and to do whatever you can to render off the table entirely out of the courtroom the facts that don't fit facts like David's book. Um, so had it existed, no, no disrespect to my friend uh, Jack Snyder, uh, had it existed in 2002, it would have been well somewhere not being used for policy. No, no offense to David. And, and so today's New York Times reminds us, an editorial in today's New York Times, uh, we still do not know how far Mr. Bush, Mr. Cheney, and others were willing to wade into that culture of deception to sell Americans on the disastrous Iraq war. I'm quoting here. Um, but we may learn more next week when the Senate Intelligence Committee releases the second half of a report on the uses and misuses of intelligence, uh, I await that with bated breath. Um, because I'm not going to – what I have argued about in terms of the use and misuse of information and history and fact is not about the, the, what, the WMD argument, which has already been covered, uh, but, but the post-conflict problems, which David talks about. And my favorite example of this, you know, you had a whole host of folks like – uh, uh, Paul Wolfowitz and Bill Kristol and Richard Pearl saying there's not going to be a need for a long-term occupation. Uh, remember all that because we're, we're, we're going to come in, we're going to, going to take out the bad guys and put in the good guys. And, and when someone came along and said that the chances of someone like Ahmed Chalabi, not necessarily Chalabi himself, but someone like him, secular, pro-Western, ed- Western-educated, you know, the nice guys, the chances of them being seen and accepted as legitimate rulers of Iraq were the functional equivalent of the ball falling up. Okay? That's what the CIA said. That's what state INR said. And my favorite line on this is from Paul Pilar, who at the time was uh, the National Intelligence Officer for the Near East. He recalled that he presented uh, some of these reports to administration officials, and he said, quote, you guys just don't see the possibilities. You're too negative. Right, it's too negative for me to say the ball is likely to fall and not go up. That's, That's being negative, okay? So I'm a historian. 
And I'm comfortable with the facts that matter for public policy being historical cases. But I'm also aware of the fact that most people are not historians, and let's be honest, it's a good thing because we wouldn't get anything done, okay? You know, there's things happening in the economy that actually are productive, and I still can't explain to my kids what I do all day long. Um, But this evidence, because it is not so obvious and apparent as gravity, is filtered and shaped and massaged such that we have the spectacle today where a substantial body of the American public believes that diplomacy is appeasement. They believe that diplomacy is the equivalent of capitulating to Adolf Hitler prior to World War II. And therefore, in its most extreme form, that diplomacy is responsible for the Holocaust. This is a historical fact, because, of course, they don't know all of the historical facts. And when political scientists and historians like me uh, point out what actually happened at Munich in 1938, uh, or we can point out, as David did, uh, that Japan and Germany are not appropriate models for designing future occupations, and pretty soon we end up in that unhappy place uh, that was set up by the, the fa- famous or infamous senior Bush administration official who was interviewed a few years ago by Ron Susskind of the New York Times. Remember this one? Uh, he said, guys like, he's talking to Suskin, guys like you, Suskin, uh, are in what we call the reality-based community, which is defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from judicious study of discernible reality. And Suskin nods, and he says, yeah, well, you know, enlightenment principles, empiricism, that kind of thing. He cut me off. That's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now. When we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality judiciously as you will, we'll act again creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will work out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. Well, uh, not surprisingly, the article uh, struck quite a nerve at the time. There's a flurry of you know, speculation as to who that person was. Susskind never did name the source. Um, but here's the thing that's really frustrating, because how different is this attitude really from American exceptionalism writ large. How different is it? Because I would argue that we Americans have this rather disdainful view of history, and dare I say, empiricism, which does have a vague kind of French sound to it or something. I don't know. We just don't like it. We don't like being told what we can't do. We don't like being told that things are difficult. And again, I don't think it's unique to the Bush administration. Um, And so I think it's incumbent upon scholars like David to do this work and to to show people what actually happened and explain what, what actually happened. And hopefully the task is not like Sisyphus and the Big Rock, okay? It's not just hopeless that we do all these things. The reason I, I'm, I'm quite confident of this, my, one of my favorite quotes, of course, is Madeleine Albright's quote about being the indispensable nation, seeing further and all that. But I actually go back to Thomas Paine. Here's Thomas Paine. The case and circumstances of America present themselves as in the beginning of the world. We have no occasion to roam for information into the obscure field of antiquity, antiquity, nor hazard ourselves upon conjecture. We are as if we had lived in the beginning of time. So with that, and hopefully not totally pessimistic note, I thank David for doing this work 
in the face of what he knew was difficult circumstances, as we do here at Cato. And I say again, it is not enough to assume that facts and logic and reason will win the day, that they will shape policy. It is incumbent upon scholars to shape it, and hopefully in as judicious and thorough a manner as David has done. Thank you very much. David, did you have any responses either on civilian capacity, Haiti, or Newtonian physics? Um, (laughs) Wait, two things. First one, uh, can somebody get Chris a drink, please? (laughs) (laughs) Rough day, Chris? Is it noon already? Uh, A lot of of caffeine. Yeah. Um, Just on on Bob's very thoughtful comments, Um, you know, Yes, sort of ceteris paribus, right? More preparation is better than less preparation, right? Um, and sort of uh, thinking about c- civil governance, uh, all of this is, is, yeah, more and more would be better. Um, I would just kind of make a couple quick points on this, right? One is that you're absolutely right. In Germany and Japan, we actually did, the U.S. did quite a bit of preparation for it. We had these um, civil affairs training schools at places like UVA and Yale and People would go there and they would learn language and, and all the rest. The remarkable thing is that people went to these schools. They then went over to Germany and Japan. And when they came back, they talked about how remarkably unprepared they were for what the, the task that they were given. Now, they still may be relatively more prepared than we were for other ones, right? So your point may still be, may still be correct. Um, I do think, though, that there is a certain kind of, especially in a sort of post-conflict environment, there's, there's always going to be a certain amount of uncertainty there that, that even the best preparation can't, can't get you over, right? And that, that's going to be problematic. And then just in terms of kind of ado- adequate preparation, marshalling resources, preparing civilian governments, governance, I would argue that those things are more likely to happen under the threat environment that I've described, right? You're more likely to prepare yourself well and marshal the resources for something that you see as a sort of severe and significant threat to your national security than something that isn't, right? And therefore, that I agree with you, those things are necessary. They're only going to happen, though, I think, under, under particularly um, favorable um, circumstances. Um, and then I would just say, on, on finally, and more seriously on Chris's point, you know, one of the words I use in the, the concluding chapter of the, the book is, um, uh, is hubris. Right, and I think I think one way of of defining hubris is ignoring history, right? Um, and um, I think you know part of the part of the difficulty the U.S. has had um, in Iraq is is not just an ignorance of history, but as you suggested, a selective use of history, right? Um, and has gotten um, has created some some trouble. Thanks. And with that, we will open the floor to questions. Uh, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have. And please keep your question as short as possible so that we can take as many as possible. Uh, we'll start right there. Uh, Jason Davidson, University of Mary, Washington. Just um, a question about that comes out of the Iraq case, and I think it relates a little bit to, to what Chris Preble said. Um, what if there's a, a bit of a disconnect between what the occupying government thinks about external threat and what the public thinks and maybe even what the occupied public or government thinks. So in Iraq, you know, the Bush administration at least says, you know, whether, they, whether they actually believe this and whether there's evidence to support this belief or not, but they believe 
or they say, um, that uh, Iraq has become this nest of vipers for, for al-Qaeda, in which case then you can view it as, you can view al-Qaeda as an external threat that is in, then using Iraq and the instability in Iraq um, to develop power that then can be targeted against the United States. So if that's the case, the thing that has changed, it seems, is the American public's perception that that's not the case and or that the occupation isn't the solution to that external threat problem. Thanks. Each one at a time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the, um, the answer to your question is that you know, one has to be cognizant of, of all of these divisions within both the, the society of the occupying power and the society of the occupied population, right? And the, the sort of the more, um, the more variation there is in, in views of this external threat, whether it's in the whether it's in the occupying power or the the, the occupied territory, um, the more variation is the, the the more difficult it's going to be, right? And so the more that you get a disjuncture between what the government sees as the value of the occupation and what the the population sees as the value of the occupation, the harder it is going to be sustained especially ostensibly in, in a democracy where the, the government has to be responsive to, to these concerns from the population. Um, and similarly, I think in Iraq, right, what, what Iraq is the model of is, is, you know, what happens when you have a deeply <clears throat> fractured society, right? Um, and, you know, it's very unlikely in such a society that you're going to get agreement on, on an external threat. And, and the critical issue, right, is, is this external threat more or less of a threat to our nationalism than the occupying power itself? Or the other party. Or, 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 the, or the other, other party. That's, or, right. Right. Yeah. That's right. right. That's right. Any other comments on? Well, just, just a note and to pick up um, on Chris's point about people being delusional and or not wanting to see the reality that was there. If you remember in the first year, the, the intervention ended, the major combat phase of operations ended in April 2003, and then um, over the summer there were incidents, and then by the fall there was a series of really major attacks, and then by the time we got to around Christmas time there was a real war going on there, all during that period. Senior U.S. officials described this as the last gasp, these were dead enders, you know, there was no, there was a real unwillingness to admit that we were facing an insurgency at that point, so... So just to substantiate your point that you don't get a reaction unless if people are continually unwilling to face what's actually going on and label it. Other questions? Right down here in the front. Gerald Schneider, Kensington, Maryland. I wanted to frame the argument differently to get your response to it, particularly you, Dr. Edelstein. What if we put it in terms of control my understanding in World War II that we imposed almost dictatorially what would happen in Germany and Japan, whereas in Iraq we used a more group dynamics approach, trying to involve the local people or the administration in doing it, and could the control factor be the difference? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I, I think on the, in the first case, I'm not sure that I would I – would completely agree with the premise of the question, right? I mean, I think in, in Iraq, there was certainly a, a sense that, that, you know, different groups were eventually going to have to be involved. But I think sort of early on in the occupation, at least, there was an effort to kind of, you know, I mean, Bremer goes over there, right, and has, you know, order number one disbanding <clears throat> the army, right? Uh, you know, I mean, it, that, was, that was without much Iraqi input, right? Um, and... 
Uh, American input. Either. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, how much American input? Either. But um, so you know, I'm not sh- I'm not sure that I completely buy the premise of the the the, qu- the question. But I think it is an interesting issue to to think about, right? Which is how much how much involvement are you going to allow for kind of local population as opposed to just kind of coming in and saying this is how it's going to be done, right? And this is the this. I mean, That's right. But, you know, but what's interesting is he wrote the Japanese constitution for them, but he also made a what I think many historians of the, the occupation of Japan view as, as perhaps the critical decision in that occupation, which was um, not to hang the emperor, right? Um, he, he made a decision that the, the emperor was going to be completely stripped of his, you know, any, any authority within the state but was going to retain a symbolic role, right? And in that way, it kind of engages with, with the population. You know, I think as, as I'm sort of sitting here, I'm kind of thinking through this, my, my sort of list of cases, and I, I can't say that I, I sort of see a, a sort of pattern in terms of kind of how authoritative the control of the occupying power was um, as opposed to sort of engaging local population between sort of success and, and failure. I think, you know, in some cases part of the problem was that there were places where, where you wanted to engage a local population, but the local population was so sort of disjointed and um, that it was kind of hard to figure out who you're going to engage with. Yeah, I would. If I can pick up on that. I would. I would also qu- question both premises, uh, but but especially with respect to Germany and Japan. I mean, the, as I recall John Dower is quite critical of of the United States for not being harsh enough with the Japanese for cutting a few too many deals, not just with the emperor, but with some of the other power uh, brokers inside of Japan. Uh, and a similar argument can be made with the case of, of Germany. Did denazification not go deep enough? I mean, people say that debathification went too deep in Iraq, uh, but. Again, there were some criticisms that um, uh, that the that the occupation authorities, of course, it wasn't just the United States, um, were um, rehabilitating too quickly uh, uh, f- uh, former German, you know, German officials, and I think that's a li- so. I, I I think somewhat separately, are we as a nation culturally disposed to very heavy-handed? techniques that might have been acceptable to empire's past? And the answer is, I think, clearly no, which is why I don't think we're really an empire. We're not really, we're not really cut out for it. I'm not the only one to make that point. Um, but, but there's also the case that it, David explores in this book about, and it's an interesting case study because the, it's so neatly juxtaposed, the North Korean case and the South Korean case. Um, you can be brutal if you, if you can kind of culturally accommodate it. But part of the, part of the occupation dilemma is that if you are engaging in um, tactics that are not acceptable back home, then the support for the occupation withers, as we saw in the Philippines. So it's a good question, but I think that that when you kind of peel away a few of the details, it's not quite as clear-cut as as your question was framed. Bob, did you have any comments on that? No, that's fine. Okay, great. Uh, Let's come back down in front. Thank you. I'm Leonard Oberlander. Uh, I'd like to ask a question about something that uh, relates to South Korea. You, when you were talking about the occupation, uh, you were talking about the 1945 occupation after World War II. If we proceed to 1954, the military, very strong military presence in South Korea from that point on uh, 
became contentious somewhat in the, in the Johnson administration, then very much in the Nixon administration, and then with the confrontation in the Carter administration. Uh, but this presence, I don't know that you would call it an occupation. It that doesn't feel like it by any definition. But the studies that were done there that was sociological, socio-psychological, showed that the Korean people had a very favorable attitude towards the American troops, even though the president at that time, Park Chung-hee, was not a, a Democrat. And they transitioned into <clears throat> parties and, and free elections, which, which were actually uh, democratic reforms. How do you attribute... Uh, the difference, the success of the United States policies. I know the, the, about the difference between the two periods, but what was so successful that the United States military did in the military civic action programs there uh, that made it work as it did? Well, I mean, I think, you know, again, sort of restating, restating what you said, I, I think it is important to understand that, that this was not an occupation after the, after the Korean War. It was, it was essentially an alliance, right, um, with, with a large U.S. presence there to, to offer defense to, to South Korea. I, you know, um, so uh, the, the first thing I would say is that I, I haven't studied the kind of post-Korean War sort of period as, as carefully. I mean, I do know some things about it. And the sort of the critical, the critical point I would make is, that, you know, what did the U.S. military do? It fought the Korean War, right? Um, and I think that's that's part of what endeared it to to the Korean population, right? And I think you're correct to note that there was a, there's always been a lot of tension in that relationship, and and I think um, Korean leadership, you know, wanting to sort of, you know, Korean leadership and American leadership perhaps having some disagreement over the best way to go forward on the the Korean peninsula, right? But the, the willingness of the population to kind of tolerate the presence of the U.S. because of what the U.S. had done for it and because of the presence of that alliance, um, you know, I don't think is particularly surprising, right? Um, and um, in light of that popular support, I, 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 you know, I think you've seen very few kind of out-and-out calls for the U.S. to get out of southern Korea with, within Korea. Um, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, just, just to go back to my um, my example of Germany in the early 80s, um, at that time, Germany was an economic success story. The United States was having real trouble economically at home. The U.S. Army was still trying to recover after, after Vietnam. Um, when I was there, uh, U.S. enlisted personnel were having a tough time making ends meet. The Germans were having care drives to... to uh, provide care packages to U.S. service families. Um, U.S. military people were staying on the base and shopping at the PX because they got discounted prices. They couldn't afford to really go out on the economy. Um, the whole nature of the relationship between the occupying power and the occupied had almost reversed. Uh, the Germans were in much better shape in the early 80s than, than we Americans were. Um, and so... Um, you know, that really had a lot to do with the dynamic during that particular period. Can I, back to the, the Korea case, I think, David, e even if you don't define the, the post-54 period as an occupation, and I agree with you why you shouldn't, I think there, that your insight into the threat environment is still relevant here, okay? Because if you, when you go to the, Korea, to the South Koreans in 45 and 46, and, and all they knew of threat was Japan, 
for two generations at least, and then you said to them, no, no, the threat from Japan may be gone, but, but there's another threat coming that is even greater, it just wasn't very credible. And then, you know, then 1950 arrives, and, and it's suddenly very credible. So I think the threat environment is relevant there, too, even if it's not, strictly speaking, an occupation. I agree. Right. <laughs> right here on the aisle. Bill Klein from Washington, D.C. I have a question. Did you look at the relative cost of the occupiers of all these things? It's my impression our current occupation is pretty expensive. Yeah. I don't know about after World War II or others, but uh, and particularly, too, how you pay for it. Right now we're paying for it with borrowed money, so maybe that makes a difference. But it strikes me that in the past maybe the occupations haven't been a big economic burden and yeah. consequences of that sort. Um, Sorry for my pained look. This is this is bringing back bad memories, um, which is that that trying to trying to figure out the costs of some of these occupations, particularly when you go back kind of to some of these sort of historical ones, really really hard. Um, in part because the way the budgets were done, they were never sort of you know there was never a line item for the occupation of the Dominican Republic, right? Um, it was it was sort of part of the larger military budget, kind of came in from from various. Places and then you know the the sort of the other aspect is that I think I think you almost you you underestimate the costs if you just look at direct financial costs right in that there are there are indirect costs uh, in terms of sort of um, you know opportunity costs that might come out of of you know um, sustaining the occupation there are there are human costs which are not easily kind of captured and put in you know i can tell you how many i can tell you how many troops died in you know such and such occupation right but as a sort of absolute number that doesn't necessarily mean all that much right um, so what i did in the book um, I, where i had the data i provided the data on financial costs and and i think um, uh, where does the Iraq occupation rank on that? I, very hard to say, right? Because I think it is it is extraordinarily expensive, but U.S. GMP at the moment is also sort of unprecedented, right? So in percentage terms, I'm not actually. I'd, I'd have to I'd have to go back and crunch those numbers again. Um, what I did in the book, in terms of using a proxy to try and capture all those costs, was to look at sort of the domestic debate over these various occupations. Right? Um, was there actually was there actually consternation domestically over the costs of the the occupation? Right? Which which seemed to me it's not a perfect proxy, but it seems to me to capture somewhat. If people are concerned about the costs, they're going to make a they're going to make a stink about it. Right? So. Um, the occupation of Haiti, which went on for 20 years, there was sort of something of a kind of simmering domestic debate throughout the entire period um, about the cost of the occupation of, of, of Haiti in all its various forms. Anybody else on costs of occupation? Yeah, the cost, the cost in Haiti, if you go back and look at the history of the 1914 to 1935 Haitian occupation, toward the last 10 years of it, there was a tremendous um, amount of response from human rights groups and uh, humanitarian groups and church groups in the United States about the brutal way that U.S. military forces treated the Haitians. And this uh, U.S. military invoked something called a curvet. It forced Haitians to go out and work for free to build roads and whatnot. Um, and there were repeated uprisings in Haiti against the U.S. military. Very bloody battles were fought. Um, a lot of human rights abuses created, and, and so there was this this uh, ongoing debate. And when you know the depression hit, uh, that really changed attitudes, and the United States just took off and left. Yeah, I mean the the 
the confounding factor there is that this was all happening during the 1920s, um, and right. people's attention um, were on some other things, um, especially after after World War One ended. Right. Yeah. But also, just the the total share of spending to the military was uh, you know much much smaller. Of course, larger as a percentage of federal expenditures because those didn't go up until later. But it's still very very small in real terms. That's right. <clears throat> all right. Let's we have one more t- time for one more question. Let's go right down here in front. Right. Yeah, thank you. Uh, John McKay, retired Marine Corps officer. Um, Two different areas unique in their own right. Occupation of the South following the American Civil War and occupation of the uh, Saar Ruhr following World War I. Um, On the the first one, the the occupation of the South I actually don't include, um, and this was – Many of my southern friends are up, upset with me about this. Um, uh, I don't include it um, because, I, again, my definition of occupation is, is that this is in somehow, some way temporary, right? And I, the, the clearly, clearly the goal of the federal government in occupying the South after the Civil War was reincorporating it into the United States, right? The, the Confederate states were not going to be allowed to go on their own way after the occupation. So, so that gets excluded from the case study. Um, no offense to anybody from Mississippi or anyone down there. <laughs> Um, uh, the case of the, the roar um, after World War I, um, it's an interesting case. It's a, it's a complicated case um, because you have, um, you have uh, the, the U.S. is actually there, um, sort of a little known. Um, the U.S. is there. The British are there. Um, and what happens over the course of the, the 1920s um, is essentially everybody kind of gets bored with it. Um, and uh, without actually doing very much to kind of make sure that uh, Germany was not going to be able to reincorporate the incredible industrial resources of the Ruhr into its post-war economy, um, everyone just kind of gets bored with it and goes home. Um, and I think um, mm. this, was, this was problematic, right, And that, you know, I think it's, it's clearly going too far to say if the occupation of the Ruhr had continued, Germany would never have reemerged and World War II would have happened, right? You don't want to go down that road. But I do think it is an instructive case in that the Germans got tired of being occupied and the U.S. and the British got, got tired of justifying why they were there. Um, and eventually the occupation kind of – this is one that kind of goes away with a, with a whimper rather than a bang. Well, great. Let me uh, thank all of you for coming. Let me also correct the most uh, egregious omission. The books are available for sale outside, <laughs> and everyone should buy one. Uh, please thank our author and our commentators, and join us upstairs for a sandwich. Thank you.